Welcome into this week's edition of AWA Unleashed. We are the self-proclaimed preeminent number one podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the American Wrestling Association. If you follow the podcast, this is not some sort of new WWE Ezekiel Elias. This is me, Chris Tubbs. I was going to say some, you know, it's my brother Carl or, you know, my brother Daryl. And this is my other brother, Daryl. No, 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 no. Yes, I shaved. I got a haircut, and uh, there are reasons for that, not because people told me to, but I'm a pushover. But we've got something fun today, guys. Polish show, Mick Karch joining me. This is going to be a fun show. I'm excited because it ties into what we've done the last couple of weeks. Absolutely, it does. We're going to be talking about one guy who not only was one of the most feared heels and detested heels in the business, but one of the most beloved baby faces when he got out of the wrestling business. And of course that's Jerry Blackwell. We're going to talk about that epic night uh, where it all went down back in June of 1984. So this is, this is going to be a good one. I'm really looking forward to it. I've said it on previous shows, how um, to me, there's two heel turns in the AWA that I really popped for as a kid. Um, one was Ray the Crippler Stevens uh, going against the Bobby Heenan family. And the other one is Jerry Blackwell finally getting away from that dastardly Arab, Sheikh Adnan LKC. Let's do it. Good stuff. Yeah, they're, they're, we're going to go through the, the history of Jerry Blackwell you know, before the AWA. We're going to take you through everything that led up to it and then the subsequent fallout. So this is going to be one that is going to be primarily just about Jerry Blackwell with the Axis being the actual event. Like you guys had mentioned what happened in the Civic Center uh, back on that night where it was really one of the most memorable things that had happened, like you said, Joe, one of the two turns that you specifically remember. Before we get to that, guys, um, I know that we lost another legend recently and Mick, I'm going to let you go ahead and uh, and start. And we're going to do, I believe, a a tribute to him coming up next week. Eldridge Wayne Coleman, uh, who, of course, was better known to wrestling fans as superstar Billy Graham. And uh, Billy passed away uh, this past Wednesday. Uh, th- there's not enough superlatives when you're talking about superstar Graham. Uh, He got started up in Canada, uh, trained by Stu Hart. So, you know, he went through hell right from the get-go. He was a power lifter prior to that, a bodybuilder. Superstar Billy Graham absolutely revolutionized professional wrestling in so many ways. Uh, He came here to the AWA in the early 1970s, and instantly he had people in the palm of his hand. Uh, with his flamboyance, his attire, his promo style, you name it. And and Joe and Chris, we've talked about it, you know, off camera. How many wrestlers down the road Billy Graham mm-hmm. influenced? He influenced so many from whoops, uh, Jesse Ventura, who credits uh, superstar Billy Graham for his his uh, in-ring persona. Ric Flair has given him credit. Hulk Hogan, the list is a who's who 
of professional wrestling. The thing I remember about superstar Billy Graham as a, as a very young kid when he first came out is we still had black and white TV. And I remember an in-ring promo that he did uh, before a match. Marty O'Neill was holding the mic, and he was talking about the, the fans have seen me live and in Technicolor. And I remember going to my mom, can we get a color TV so I can see what the hell he is talking about? Superstar Billy Graham, a true legend in the sport. And I don't like to throw that term around too loosely. Yeah. He was a legend and his battles and We'll talk about it in another show because if we keep going now, this entire show will be about Superstar. Absolutely. You know, and just in in conclusion there, Superstar dodged a lot of bullets over the past couple of years uh, from a health standpoint. Um, Physically, he was a mess and endured an awful lot uh, for several years. But what a fighter. I mean, there's there's testament to just how tough – uh, superstar Billy Graham was. So I'm looking forward to the program, to the tribute to uh, Billy Superstar Graham. Uh, the number one selection, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the picture of reflection or whatever whatever it was. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, Godspeed, Billy Graham. So we'll do a, a show about Billy Graham next week, but we're going to focus in on the Jerry Blackwell turn, guys, and and – we're going to get to that, but let's kind of lead up and give a little bit of background about Jerry Blackwell. One thing I found interesting, first of all, when you hear about Jerry Blackwell, he's one of the few guys in AWA history that is from where he is built from, because wrestlers are built from wherever. He was the mountain from Stone Mountain. I mean, born in, in Stone Mountain, you know, passed away in Georgia. So it's... It's really unique, I think, in that sense. It's a small thing, but I feel like it's just so – it's kind of one of those neat little factoids. It absolutely is, and and what a great way to start off, Chris, and, and good point, too, because you got Mad Dog Vashon, supposedly Algerian when Mad Dog was Canadian. Uh, how many, you know, uh, Russians and Germans were actually American or Japanese were really of Hawaiian extraction, you name it, but Jerry Blackwell was the real deal. And uh, he was a, a good old country boy. And, you know, the, from the accent to, uh, you know, him talking about the foods that he was eating, you know, down on the farm there or whatever, uh, Jerry was the real deal. Mm-hmm. And Joe and I will, will kind of get into what kind of a real Southern gentleman he was outside the ring. Uh, but inside the ring, they did, I'm telling you, they did not make him any tougher than Jerry Blackwell. And, and people because of his girth, kind of discounted that. And uh, a lot of wrestling fans who hated Jerry Blackwell looked at him, and I'm I'm not being disparaging, as some big fat guy that they would like to knock out, you know, that they could take in a fight. Um, Jerry Blackwell was one of the strongest men in pro wrestling. He was part of the World's Strongest Men competition uh, going way back. Uh, Jerry was as tough as nails. He would go toe-to-toe with anybody, whether you were a wrestler or a fan. He didn't care. If you got in his face, uh, he he was going to take care of business. There's a a shot of Big Jerry there. Uh, 
I've, I've told the story a couple of times about how uh, one night he was introduced uh, by the ring announcer who wanted to know what his weight was. And Jerry said 460 plus the jackup. So they build him at 468 <laughs> instead of 460. I didn't understand the reason for that, what difference the eight pounds meant. Maybe he, it was his wallet. Um, but Jerry Blackwell in the history of the AWA so overlooked as one of the all-time greats. There was one card. We're in Vegas at the showboat and uh, had Jerry's weight at 472 pounds. So I asked Jerry, in fact, it was the same night that uh, Jerry and I uh, roomed together in the showboat. But I asked him, I go, so why 472 tonight? I've been doing 468 for all these other shows. And Jerry goes, I, I think I just had too much gas that I couldn't pass. So I had to pump it up four pounds. It's like four pounds of gas, Jerry? Come on. He just looked at me, smiled and laughed. And, you know, that, that was Jerry. A massive man, yeah. thick, strong, as you said, Mick. And he could do a drop kick. Yeah. He could, it's not a Brunzel drop kick. I'm not going to give him that. But my goodness, the fact that he could do a standing drop kick and at least get one of them, at least up to this level, incredible. Incredible. He, he was not a tall guy. Jerry, I think, was about five foot nine. There's what, exactly what you were talking about there. And of all things, he's delivering the drop kick to Jim Brunzel. Now, can you imagine, you know, the, the, the irony in that one? But Jerry, I mean, he didn't take a running leap. This was. Did, a, did, did they ever call him Jumping Jerry Blackwell after I that? Don't, I, I don't think they did. I, I think it was Jiggling Jerry. Jiggling Jerry might have been. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but the athleticism of this guy doing a standing drop kick, uh, absolutely amazing. And again, I, I want to reiterate because so many heels in the AWA are mentioned, like the Mad Dogs and the Crushers in their day and what have you, and even Billy Graham that we mentioned before. Jerry Blackwell got as much heat Mm-hmm. for several years as anybody did in the business. And, uh, you know, he came to the AWA, God, is it 42 years ago already, which is just frightening as hell. But he had uh, he had done some work uh, trained by uh, Gino Brito up in uh, Canada uh, early on. And then, of course, he went to the WWWF mm-hmm. yep. uh, back in the day as Crusher Blackwell. And he was managed by the Grand Wizard of Wrestling. So, uh, you know, Jerry, right from the get-go, was a, a star in this business. Uh, but when he came to the AWA, everything took off. And th- there you see, that's the new Crusher Blackwell. And that, of course, is, uh, I believe, from inside a wrestling or wrestling, uh, the wrestler, uh, Jerry, with the Grand Wizard of Wrestling. Um, but as I say, when he came to the AWA, Joe, that's when it literally exploded and it didn't take too long. Yeah, I grew up hating him because he was trying to take my boy Crusher Lazowski's Crusher gimmick. And, of course, uh, if it's a Crusher versus Crusher match, you know which way this poll is going to lean. I'm going with the guy from South Milwaukee, not the big guy from Stone Mountain, Georgia. Uh, But there there was one of the things that Jerry did, a, a feat of strength, uh, we taped the episode 
um, in, in the studio where he would have, uh, it was a two by eight, maybe as a one by eight, still a piece of wood. He would take a nail and put a towel on his head. He would take the nail and he would pound the nail into the board. Um, probably yeah. not what any CTE doctor would want to see another human being do, but Jerry did it. He was successful doing it. And then he would follow that up by body splashing that uh, two by eight and it would shatter. And if you think that, well, that's a big deal, go ahead and try it and see if you're going to be able to splinter this board. Jerry did it like it was a toothpick. And that was all legit. The board was not gimmicked. The nails were not gimmicked. This was legitimate. Strong man, crazy man, Stone Mountain, Georgia man. This country, country real. strong. That's what they call it, country strong. So why, guys, it, correct me if I'm wrong here, but was he presented as a uh, a fan favorite, a baby face before he was a, a heel? And did it not work? I mean, kind of, how, how did that come about? Because in order to be a, a great baby face, you have to be a great heel. But it seems like there's a pattern where guys don't really get over when they're presented as a baby face right off the bat. You know, it, it's interesting. He was a heel out east when he came to the awa they built him as farmer blackwell and you know i have mentioned this before i think the idea and again I, I don't know for sure i'm guessing i think the idea was to present him as kind of a a man mountain mike haystack calhoun kind of a lovable character and i don't know who pulled the plug quickly if it was jerry who said i'm not comfortable doing this or if Vern and Wally said this isn't quite getting over, but it was not very long lived. I will tell you that. I don't know if it's maybe a show or two that he was Farmer Blackwell, and then all of a sudden he's on TV doing his promos, and he's red hot because he's Crusher. He's the real Crusher, and who's this guy? This uh, other Crusher running around town, and it was like this instantaneous heel turn and of course if you're uh, taking shots at the crusher in minnesota or wisconsin you instantly have made the list uh, as it were so I, I don't know chris to answer your question uh who made the decision but in the long run man did it pay off and when he did go from heel to baby face much like everybody else his in-ring style was the same yeah. It didn't change. It's just who he was going against in the ring that made him that baby face. And I guess today's turn, this is the one that really, I, I didn't see it coming. There are those out there that, you know, that did see it coming. I didn't. And I loved that heel turn. Yeah. And, and I want to, I'm going to get into that in a little bit here, guys, but I want to circle back, Joe, to something that you were talking about in terms of the feats of strength. Tell me more about the uh, this body slam challenge with Dino Bravo. <laughs> well, I mean, Dino was a thick, muscular, albeit shorter, human being. 
And uh, do you know of God, what was it? He was bench pressing like 700 pounds or something like that. And so the big feud just came about. Okay, hey, Jerry Blackwell, I'm stronger than you, Dino Bravo. Dino, no, I can take you. And so we're going to try to do the whole body slam gimmick. Um, I, I like the whole angle with the crusher better, but that's a whole other story. But no, it, it, you've got two massive human beings, one a little more marshmallowy than the other, shall yeah. we say. Different types of strength. Yeah. Very much so, but they were both extremely strong yeah. human beings, and uh, uh, yeah, hell of an angle to 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 go with. I don't think it lasted for very long because uh, wasn't the the body slam challenge that that was before the whole angle with Crusher, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and they they handled this to perfection. You know, I mean, the the, uh, the announcers are touting the strength of Dino Bravo. And of course, Jerry Blackwell says, you know, let, let piss on that. You know, he, he certainly can't body slam me and I will put up, I don't know if it was a thousand or $10,000 or whatever to see if Dino Bravo can body slam me. If he can't, you know, he better fork up the money. Well, of course they did every conceivable cheating dastardly uh, thing during the body slam challenge. Yeah, I know. I, I get it. Uh, imagine that, uh, you know, Jerry would, you know, maybe attack him before the before the thing started or whatever. And eventually Dino did body slam him. And of course, the crowd popped. But well, Jerry wouldn't pay up. He wouldn't give him the money because he said it was a hip toss. It was not a body slam. He didn't get me all the way up. So it doesn't count. So they milked that one for a long, long time. And Dino Bravo was a great uh, early on rival for Jerry Blackwell. And as you said, from there, it was uh, full speed ahead for Jerry. So what about, I, I know that we we showed one of the, the pictures of the dropkick with uh, jumping jiggly Jerry Blackwell and uh, jumping Jim Brunzel. What about the feud with the high flyers? That was epic. Uh, you know, and it was tailor-made. It was, I mean, you knew it was going to happen. I mean, it, it, that you could see that a mile away, uh, particularly because of Greg Gagne's size at the time. And Jim Brunzel, you know, a little bit bigger than Greg, but again, compared to Jerry Blackwell, you know, Jerry outweighed the two of them together. Uh, and that is, that's a legitimate fact. And there, uh, poor Jim, poor jumping Jim, there he is again, on the receiving end of a Jerry Blackwell, I'm guessing that was a power slam. Uh, interestingly enough, as I was looking for pictures, I didn't see a lot of Greg Gagne uh, selling, for, <laughs> selling for Jerry Blackwell. I'm sure there's pictures that are out there, so we'll use uh, Jumpin' Jim as the, uh, as the uh, foible today. Uh, but it was tailor-made, and, you know, when Jerry would, would splash Greg Gagne or, you know, on a leg or whatever it was, it was just tremendous. And, of course, the, the feud itself continued well into uh, Jerry's association with that horrid, that rat, that desert rat from Baghdad, uh, Sheikh Adnan Al Casey. Well, and I, I hated Jerry even more and Adnan even more when they bought Ken Patera. 
The oh. suitcase, the whole suitcase of money, Bobby Heenan out there for the promo. Now all of a sudden you've got Patera and Blackwell, uh, argu- arguably the two strongest men in the AWA at the time, going against the high flyers. Uh, nice little run there. I There you go. I, I It was tough for me to believe that the high flyers could stand toe-to-toe with these two. But you know what? That was wrestling. That's right. The baby faces were supposed to be the underdogs so that the heels were supposed to win, or at least it, it was perceived that they were. And the fans tuned in. They showed up to the arenas because they wanted to see these two beat up. But um, it's not that they got beat up mm-hmm. so much. Because they are their dastardly deeds, I think, took care of them. But uh, the good guys usually came out on top. You know, it's usual. And this is especially today when people look back at Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel, we talk about this. One of the knocks on Greg Gagne is, oh, how could he toss around Jerry Blackwell? How could he go toe-to-toe with Bobby Duncan or Bruiser Brody? It was the suspension of disbelief in anybody yeah. – who is going to knock Greg on you and say, ah, that was not believable. They were selling out the building month after month, 17,000, 18,000 people when the high flyers were headlining against the Cheeks or Adonis yeah. or what have you. So, uh, but, but yeah, I get it's, it. no, it's no different than Rey Mysterio today. Absolutely. It's the same I, concept. Know, but, big, big man, little man. It's always going to work in wrestling. It is, and, and Chris, what a great point, but but people overlook that. You know, oh, well, you know, Ray, that's Ray Mysterio. He's a Hall of Famer. You know, all of a sudden, they've got a blind eye to the exact same thing yeah. going on, you know, in this era. I feel like there's it, some biases going on when it comes oh, to Oh, you think? Um, but but nonetheless, uh, the, the feuds with the Flyers, and, of course, that picture that you had up there, that was one of my all-time mm-hmm. favorite moments on wrestling. When uh, Bobby Heenan came out and sold Ken Patera, mm-hmm. and I've mentioned this before, Bobby had to explain several times what was going on so the wrestling fans at home could could, could <laughs> grasp and understand the fact that Sheik Adnan L. Casey was offering to buy Ken Patera. I believe it was for $50,000 back in the day, if I'm not mistaken, or 500000 whatever it was. And he was turning an American against the country again, as he did with Jerry Blackwell or with uh, with uh, uh, Jerry Blackwell. Now he's turning Ken Patera. Uh, two Americans through and through won the country boy, won the Olympian, and this guy with his Arab money is turning them unpatriotic, despicable. And man, did it work! Did it get over? Want to go back, if I may, just the the whole Greg Gagne thing. I agree with you, Mick, on everything that you said. Greg Gagne was a tremendous worker. He could sell. He allowed you to have that suspension of disbelief. And for those that want to... I'll put it this way. I, I sort of explain things on this on this podcast. I use the eight box of crayons, the primary colors, the reds, the blues. 
If I'm going to describe something as red, no matter what, you're going to have somebody come in, eh, it's not quite red, it's chartreuse. It's like, come on, just let's have some fun here. Okay, yeah. well, that's just an, a general statement. But the Greg Gagne thing, yes, deserved it. The, the whole angle and the run of the high flyers against the Sheik's army and everything that happened was a phenomenal, still a phenomenal period in AWA history. And all of that leads up to what we are going to be talking about today. My personal favorite all-time heel turn. Before we get to that turn, Chris, I don't mean to interrupt you here, but no, I got because I got I got questions galore when it comes. Oh, to this oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you I, tell I, about the. Pardon me. Nothing. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, getting back to Jerry Blackwell himself, when he was a member of the Sheik's Army, and then he's aligning himself with Ken Patera, and then with Adnan, there were some of the most outrageous hellacious, memorable promos in the history of wrestling. You know, when they talk about the Four Horsemen, they talk about all the factions in wrestling. I'm telling you, the Sheik's Army, and there you see it. Look at look at Adnan on there. Boy, oh boy, that, uh, you know, he's, he's ready to go back to Baghdad. And look I'm at the old tag team belts. Sorry to interrupt you, Mick. Mike, oh, I love those. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and trust me, they didn't get them on the internet. They're not replicas. But... The, the faction of the Sheik's Army, and of course it expanded to Abdullah the Butcher, and Bruiser Brody, uh, Mongolian Stomper, even John Nord. Uh, but right there, when you have Blackwell and Patera, that faction with Sheik was so red hot here. They had mm -hmm. incredible near riots every time they performed at the St. Paul Civic Center. And I got to, I, I, Joe, I'm sure you'll remember this. When I talked about some of the funniest promos that they did, I used to love when Adnan would come out and Jerry was, for some reason, he wasn't there on any particular week. And, you know, Gene Okerlund would say, you know, where's Jerry Blackwell? And Adnan would say, he's getting a massage today. You know, a massage, well, you know, he's, he's got a big back, you know. It takes several masseuses to massage the big back. You know, I, I absolutely, I, I just loved it. And again, in the history of the AWA, didn't get any bigger and better than, than Sheik's Army. Yeah, the, the, the promos that they did together were phenomenal. Jerry by himself could oh. carry a promo without any problem. You throw in the, the hated Iraqi, uh, Sheik Adnan LKC, and that, shit-eating grin that he had on his face all the yeah. time. That's what I remember. Yes. I didn't hate him because he was from from Iraq. It was just he... His body he, language. He came across that I just wanted yeah. to, to backhand him and smack him. I just hated him so much as a fan. And you know what? He did his job well because he was supposed to be hated. You were supposed to want to beat the shit out of Adnan. Yeah. So do we know guys looking back on it and this is kind of hindsight 2020 whose idea it was to put all of these guys together in the Sheik's army, Patera Blackwell with uh, Sheik Adnan. I, without, I mean, would that be Vern? I, I would have to say, I mean, back in the day, it, it would certainly be Vern. I suppose Greg had a little bit of influence. Um, 
Nick was still here. You know, he might have had a say so, but I, I would think that the ultimate decision was Vern's. And, uh, you know, he had a gold mine in Adnan. Adnan had been here for a while already. He was instantly hated from his feud with Tito Santana right on down the line. Jerry had developed this incredible animosity from the fans. And Ken Patera, you know, Ken always had that edge to him. You know, so it was a natural uh, for Ken. I, I would believe it was Vern's idea, million-dollar idea. Yep. Okay. I don't know. It was before my time. Never heard any of the stories. But whoever's idea it was, was a very good one. Yep. Okay. So we're going to get to it. But before we get to the actual turn, I, I got a few questions just leading up to it. Number one. Why is this the one when everybody goes back and talks about turns, this seems to be the one that everybody remembers. Why? Uh, I would say a couple of things. It, it was uh, it was a slow burn. First of all, it's not like today's wrestling where you hot shot an angle, you know, and all of a sudden you've got a main event, you know, just like that or whatever that they, they built it up very very slowly you could kind of sense that something was going on here kind of like when ray stevens turned babyface. you could feel a little bit where it was going um what i would say about this i think blackwell was one of those guys that grew on the fans so much that they wanted to cheer him at some point and you know it had been like you know three, four, five years of booing him, but now you've got a choice. Now you've got the American country boy who's kind of being bad-mouthed and dissed by the Iraqi invader and his army, so now you're starting to feel sympathy for Jerry. And the turn itself was done so magnificently and got so much heat. I don't remember ever seeing a crowd erupt that way that they did after that battle royal uh, where Jerry went over. But again, I, I think, Chris, the slow burn aspect of it, where mm -hmm. it's building up, the animosity is building up, and then it spills over, and you're just waiting for Jerry to get his shot and finally break and turn on Adnan and his army. If Hogan doesn't leave in late 83, does this happen? Yeah, I think so. You think so? Okay, because I feel like – you know, you look at when Hogan left and then Jerry Blackwell was kind of going to slide into that big, that, that top baby face slide. I, I think it still would have happened because Hogan, Hogan probably would have continued on with Bachwinkle, you know, in a series of matches and, you know, and, and whoever else at the time, but Jerry and the Sheiks and the, you know, even uh, Bobby Duncan, Jack Lanza, they always kind of played a secondary role to what was going on with Hogan. So they might've been a co-made event kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think it was, it was going to happen either way. So go, go ahead, Joe. Well, I was going to say, you know, I've said on previous pod, uh, on a previous podcast that no one saw it coming. No one saw it coming. I'll amend what I said and said, I didn't really see it coming more in particular it happening that night okay that was what threw me for a loop mm -hmm. and we'll get into it a little bit more but how it happened and so forth i was at the saint paul civic center that night well let's let's just let's just jump into it let's jump into that that battle royal 
And um, so the battle royal starts, and and I mean, you were there, Mick. You were there. I'm gonna let you guys just kind of go through the timeline and what you guys are feeling. So this is kind of just this is just kind of take me through the battle royal and how this thing led up, and then ultimately the execution. Yeah. First of all, I w- I would say, Joe, I kind of. I kind of looked at that battle royal lineup, which incidentally was off the charts with talent. Uh, you know, when you've got uh, when you've got Dusty Rhodes coming in to participate in a battle royal, and of course the fabulous ones are in there, and you know Kurt Hennig is in there, and, and you name it. And then of course on the other side you got Bruiser Brody and Abdullah the Butcher. Uh, this was a marquee battle royal, and. While I had my contacts with the office, it wasn't on the level where, yeah, hey, you know what, we're going to be doing this. That's why I kind of, from my perspective, thought Jerry's going to win this. Because of all the buildup prior to that, I, I thought he would win, but I never anticipated how great the story would play out after he won the Battle Royal. And we'll get into that. But that that's kind of where I was at with it. I expected him to win, but... The delivery was phenomenal. Well, and, and the delivery happened, I guess, innocently enough. It wasn't anything glaring, but you've got Abdullah the Butcher holding one of the fabulous ones for Jerry to come and give him a big splash. And the fabulous one moves, runs into Abdullah, and something just really not a big deal well, Abdullah turns around and goes after Blackwell, and that became the holy shit moment. It's like, what is happening here? All of a sudden, this this dastardly trio are now starting to get into it a little bit more. Uh, Jerry then ends up throwing Abdullah over the top rope to disqualify him from the battle royal. And they go at it outside the ring. But then it's what happened after that. That's what blew me away. Not only did Brody start attacking Blackwell and then Abdullah, and then they did the beatdown. Adnan got involved. There was this huge beatdown. You had wrestlers coming in from the locker room. The fabulous ones came out. You brought up Dusty Rhodes and a very young Kurt Henning. They could not subdue this beast of a man, Bruiser Brody, or this dastardly Abdullah the Butcher, they were relentless. They just kept beating the living shit out of Jerry Blackwell. And what I find um, part brilliant, part funny, but very good that they did that, when we, and I say we, even though I was a fan at the time, but when the matches were taped, at the St. Paul Civic Center. We did it with one camera up on a high scaffolding. I was up there many times. So you only had the one angle and it was the, the, the um, we, we, we were set up over the talent entrance, okay? So at the end of the match, they made sure to get Jerry on the front ropes. Jerry's all beat up and bloodied, and Jerry is leaning on the top ropes, still getting a beating by Abdullah and, and Brody. But they did that so that you could get Jerry. Look at Oh, my. Oh, boy. 
That's when I first saw that picture, I thought he was throwing up blood, but no, I think he's just eating a little liver. Man. But he scared the shit out of me, by the way. Both he and Brody scared the living shit out of me, even as a teenager at the time. But the, the, the whole angle turn with, to, to get back to Jerry, when, when they, it's the, not just the turn for me, it's how they did it, the relentless punishment that Brody and Abdullah and Adnan put onto Jerry Blackwell. If it would have just ended with there being a nose to nose or a or you know something in the middle of the ring and then going their separate ways, I I personally would not have classified this as a great turn. To me, it wouldn't have been enough. It was the execution and who was executing it that made this for me the single greatest turn in AWA history. I don't know how, how many times Brody came back to the ring after you thought that the beatdown was done. He would start to head back to the locker room area, and then all of a sudden he's coming back in the ring again. And he's beaten the hell out of Jerry Blackwell. And as an aside to that, Blackwell and Brody had great respect for each other. I remember when Brody passed away, they were doing an interview with Jerry, and uh, Jerry was just heartsick about it. I mean, so they had a friendship and a camaraderie outside the ring. But the fact that Brody kept coming back, and there you see Brody working on Jerry, and I don't know if that's a, a battle royal shot. I it, it might be. But then they, of course, had their series of one-on-one -on -one matches after that, which were absolutely legendary. But the reason it worked, like you said, Joe, was the ferocity of the beatdown it seemed never ending just when you think finally things are going to settle down here comes brody again and he's pushing people out of the way and he's getting back in the ring and the chairs and the fists and what have you and ultimately jerry who keeps he's not fighting but he's not laying down for these guys either and you got dusty Rhodes in the background get up get up get up and jerry is pulling himself up on the ring ropes and the crowd is starting to chant, get up, get up. So I don't know how long the actual beatdown and aftermath went, but it was absolutely extraordinary in its delivery. And I don't know how much Bruiser Brody improvised there. If maybe he told Jerry, you know, on the way out, I'm coming back. I'm going to do this again, you know, two, three times. That wouldn't surprise me because that was what Brody did in Japan or wherever. Um, but the beatdown with Jerry bleeding and them continuing to work on the cut and what have you, instant sympathy. Would, would, it, would, it have, would it have worked as much if, kind of like you were saying, Joe, if it was the face-to-face the -face and it would have ended, but because it came back, it, that just that really added to it is what you're saying. Well, like, like uh, uh, Mick said, the word, the ferocity mm -hmm. was what, to me, that's what made this complete. I'll have to add in there, as Mick also said, the way that Jerry sold it. I mean, he was getting the shit beat out of him. And as you're watching it, you believed. And that's all I've ever asked watching professional wrestling is that what I'm watching that I can believe it, that suspension of disbelief. Jerry did it. Brody did it. Abdullah did it. 
um, the, the, the guy, the boys that came into the ring at the end of it, they all added to what this storyline was. And it was, the storyline was the single greatest turn ever. Even afterwards, there's promo that um, Ken Resnick did. Jerry Blackwell laid out on a table. His face is just bloodied, not even moving. Jerry didn't say a word as he shouldn't have. He just took a beat down, the beating of his life. And seeing Larry, Jerry just laying on that table and, and Resnick doing his, his cell on it, I could not wait. Could not wait to run and not walk to buy a ticket to watch Brody and Blackwell moving forward. I really, though, wanted to see Blackwell get his hands on that dastardly Iraqi Sheikh Adnan LKC. So what about... Oh, go, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say, if you remember that video clip, that promo, it was Dr. Jim Mitchell, Dr. Iron Duke, that was actually uh, attending to Jerry as Jerry's laying out there, you know, that poor guy like a harpoon whale on this bench in the locker room. And you've got Dr. Iron Duke. I don't know if he was looking to see if you know, if Jerry had a brain in there. He, he he keeps like pulling at the wound instead of just waiting for medics. But you know that that's an aside. But as you said, the ferocity <laughs> of what they did and the fan reaction. I don't think you would possibly get a fan reaction like that today. They took those people, those seventeen thousand people, whatever it was, on that ride. That suspension of disbelief. It's like we people are watching a horror movie in a, a, a movie theater. They were that wound up. The only difference was people could scream at the ring. They could scream at Brody. You can't scream at the movie theater at the actor on the screen. You don't do that. It was perfection. And I've been to, God, I don't know how many thousands of matches over the years. And honest to God, I do not remember anything being so heated, and I'm including Hogan Bockwinkle. That that was hot, but it couldn't hold a candle to the Jerry Blackwell baby face. Well, it was just you mentioned it was the slow burn, and the slow burn is what's missing so much in the industry right now. People do not want to; they don't want the long term storytelling. You got to have it right now. Promo at the beginning of the show, backstage vignette in the middle, main event at the end. It's very blocked out. Yeah. And that, guys, I, I feel is a very good point that you guys are talking. Just kind of the whole process of, you know, Ken Patera joining the Sheik's Army and then being, you know, being insulted and, you know, degraded. And, and then the whole mistake by Abdullah in the ring. And then it just exploded. People don't want that nowadays. And, I still believe that if you can tell a story right, like they did with this, fans want it. You're just not giving it to them. As, as was mentioned on this podcast several months ago, Chris, back then the booking would start six months down the road and work its way backwards. So they would have an idea in mind. This is where we're going to. This is where we're going to finish up. And then they would do that slow burn. In today's wrestling, it's almost a reverse of that. You know, you've got hot shot in main events. 
people don't want to wait. Everybody is a smart fan that knows what's going to be going to happen. Oh, eventually these guys are going to feud. So you might as well have them do it tonight. Um, different time, different era in wrestling. And again, work to perfection. Um, one of the things I want to add to the, the whole angle is the style of Bruiser Brody. So Brody was really a um, a feature attraction mm-hmm. um, in the vein of an Andre the Giant. He would come into territories for a while and so forth. But Brody would not, no matter where he went, he would not let his gimmick be diminished. In other words, he would not... He would put somebody over, but not to the full degree. You're not going to get a one, two, three, a clean one, two, three. Was he was he protective of being very protective of the gimmick then? Very protective. Uh, uh, that that was his gimmick. I mean, no matter where he went, mm-hmm. that's the way that Brody was. He was this wild, uncontrollable. Uh, in, in many ways, unbeatable force. And I think that's what rubbed him sort of wrong with um, uh, with a lot of promoters. I'm not saying that's what happened to him down that, that fateful night down in Mexico. But I know that there was a lot of heat with Brody in the front office because Frank wanted to do things the way that he saw fit. Mm-hmm. He might take into consideration what, you know, what Werner Gregg or somebody would say. But Brody, the old the old saying of um, uh, you know he marched to his own drumbeat. That was extremely true with Bruiser Brody, and so I bring that up when the whole turn happened, and you had the boys from the locker room come out. Brody was still this uncontrollable, even though you had the legendary. Uh, uh, Dusty Rhodes out there. You had the fabulous ones and Kurt Henning. Even though you had these these stars come in there that by on any given match could hold their own, they could not contain Bruiser Brody. And that wasn't part yeah. of the the turn. That was Brody himself. So he played it out to perfection as well. It's like all of the pieces came together yeah. for this so well. And yet again, that's why I say it's the, for me, it's the greatest heel turn in AWA history. Okay. So we got about 12, 13 minutes left guys. Here's, here's my question. We've still got a lot of things with Jerry Blackwell to cover. Do we want to do a separate Jerry Blackwell episode then? Absolutely. Because I mean, yeah, there's a lot of things with mad dog and, and I know Joe, you'd love to get into things with crusher and of course, you know, Hogan and you know, Vern, do we want to kind of table that and push that off to another time? And then we'll, we'll circle back to it and we'll kind of wrap it up right now. Take it home. That, that works for me because, you know, Jerry, you know, as you said, Chris, there's so I, I much- feel, I, yeah, I feel like there's so much more, we can get to. And if we wanted to focus on the turn, I, I don't want to get away from that because right. I feel like that that's the essence of the topic. Yeah. And, and to Joe's point about Brody being the rebel, that's why I kind of think that maybe it was Brody's idea to keep going back to the ring, you know, to, uh, 
to, to beat the shit out of Jerry and have the crowd go crazy. And just when you think it's over, here he comes again. Uh, Brody was that kind of a guy. He did stuff on the fly. And I've mentioned before, he had a singles match with Jerry uh, that he walked out on. He and, didn't and, like and, that, and that and that really helps Jerry. I'm sorry, Mick. And, and that, that also, in the process, he's helping Jerry become yes. a bigger fan favorite every time that he goes back. But yeah, the, the match that he he walked out of bruiser. No, but, but, but spot on. I mean, as far as that point is concerned, yeah. I mean, Brody, sure, he was getting himself over as the monster heel, but he knew how the – he was playing off the crowd. He heard the crowd, and he knew how they were reacting to Jerry getting the crap kicked out of him. So maybe he said, I'll go back to locker. I'm, I'm coming back out again. Let's, let's play this out for a little while. Brody was a genius in that sense. And again, I mentioned the the friendship between Blackwell and Brody. It went deep. Um, and I, I said earlier, when Brody was killed in, in Puerto Rico, Jerry took it very, very hard. I think the friendship between Brody and Blackwell kind of manifested itself in that in that match, in the beatdown, how odd it is. One guy's beating the crap out of the other guy with the same goal in mind. Get the people into it, get them to buy tickets. Let's get this thing over. And they did. And here's the thing that those two did. <clears throat> Despite, or even though they had this tremendous, <clears throat> excuse me, respect for each other, um, these two laid it into okay. each other. Not to the point of, you know, doing severe damage. I mean, if they wanted to, they could. But these two, they did not pull any punches or any kicks or any stomps. And they could both take it, and they would. They pushed the limits mm -hmm. of what it was to be in that ring. And the, the, let's face it, their, their matches were not wrestling matches. By definition, they were because it was, you know, there were four corners and it's an elevated ring and you had ropes and stuff. But these were just legitimate brawls that they had in the ring and the beatdowns. I mean, I, I, I could say this every episode or talk about it. Do yourself a favor. Look up this angle. Look, look up the matches between Brody and Blackwell. They beat the living shit out of each other. Joe, you had two tough guys. I mean, oh. legitimate tough guys. And yes. you know, they, yes. they Be believable, look, believable, legitimate tough. Yes. Yeah. You could put Stan Hansen in that mix. You know, Stan is another one of those guys. Leon White, a Vader, another. There's guys in the business that just, you know, damn it, lay it in. You know, don't be soft with that chair. If you're going to hit me, hit. How many times have we seen the dog, Mad Dog, take a chair to Jerry Blackwell's head over and over again mm -hmm. and laying them in? Uh, so that added to the believability and the credibility. And here's an interesting aside, guys, and, and I don't know the full story behind this. There was talk of teaming Jerry Blackwell with Abdullah the Butcher. Somewhere down the road. Now, I don't know how they were going to get to that, but there was talk. But, you know, that kind of evaporated because Abdullah was, you know, in and out for a cup of coffee. And then Brody, of course, doing his own thing. But um, like Joe said, and Chris, I know you agree. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to see what it's all about, when professional wrestling, a brawl is done right. Mm -hmm. And and everything, all the bells and whistles and everything else this is the one to look at. June 10th, 1984 is the date, St. Paul Civic Center. So I've said before that 
wrestling had a season and it was typically September through I'll say April. It could extend into May. That's the other part that surprised me about this one. And it wasn't until I was able to look back on it and reflect why, why June, you know, it, it was, outside of the norm hmm. to really do such a huge angle. Well, if you think about it, what was brilliant about it was Jerry got such a beat down, he couldn't come back and wrestle the next month. You had to have that time off. So they used Jerry, or all of them, the whole Sheik's Army, they used them for the entire season and now we've got this grand finale, the season under. What's the cliffhanger? The turn. And so they, it, it, in that regard, again, if you take that step back and analyze the the philosophy behind the booking, that's what I. That, that was like the cherry on top of the whipped cream and fourteen scoops of ice cream in Karch's case, the entire one gallon bucket. Two, two gallon bucket. <laughs> <laughs> correct that again i'll save uh i'll save the internet people from attacking you i'll go right on the offense here with two gallons um <laughs> i just i i want to say one thing to joe in the in the awa history remember this is 1984 mm-hmm. now you got hogan in the wwf and they're coming into town and now they're making their expansion this is the big move and you have 17,000 people at the civic center with our yeah. one of the greatest angles in AWA history. Timing couldn't have been better. So June back then, damn good idea. Yep. It that took place. That became the main event because Hulk Hogan was now gone. There you go. All right. Got about to five minutes here, guys. So let's wrap it up. Uh, we'll do more Jerry Blackwell down the road because I feel like there's another episode that oh, we need is. to really get into uh, a whole lot more. We'll tease next week as well, but let's get into the shout outs and then we'll take care of the sponsorships and then we'll go and bring it home. My shout out is to my good buddy, Richard Schwartz. And Richard is a longtime AWA fan from the Chicago area. Uh, He's a tremendous loyal fan, not only of the podcast, but uh, also of our, our web pages And uh, he had some physical difficulties over the past year, kind of coming back from those. But, Richard, God love you, buddy. You are a man among men, and the shout-out goes to you. And my shout-out this week, I'm going to do a shameless plug, and I'm going to give it to Power Town Wrestling. Why Power Town? Well, one, I'm involved with it. Uh, And what the hell is Power Town Wrestling? Well, if you remember back in the 80s, Remco Wrestling Dolls uh, was really the beginning of the genre of wrestling action figures. And the same gentleman who started that has come back and is now doing Power Town Wrestling. Do yourself a favor. If you are a wrestling collector, take a look at the incredible craftsmanship that are done on their action figures. It's not, it's not like the old Remco's where it's 
the same body with with slightly different heads. I mean, I think that I think that's the first time that Jerry Blackwell ever had abs was on his original Remco doll, and the first time that Greg weighed over two sixty. Uh, I'm surprised that they even build them over two hundred, to be honest, at the time. But that aside, the the Power Town wrestling action figures. The actual figures have been shipped. They have arrived, and now they're going to be distributed. If you are a wrestling memorabilia collector, you will love what these look like. The Brody one even got the the railroad tracks on him. It's got his furry boots. It's, It's got the chain. Just phenomenal. Just phenomenal. So, Power Town, thanks for having me on board. And uh, I'm going to give it to uh, Lenny Bakken, uh, our friend, who was a big uh, influencer in the wrestling podcast world. Uh, he's hooked up with uh, a lot of individuals, and uh, you know we're looking to get him on board as well. But he, Lenny is, is absolutely a class act, and uh, I love talking to him anytime on Twitter. Big supporter of the podcast. So, uh, Lenny, uh, here's to you, my friend. Uh, shout out to you. All right, guys, got a couple minutes. Next week is going to be the tribute to superstar Billy Graham. Well, well deserved. Uh, in his later years, and I, I'm talking before he started to get very ill, uh, Billy became kind of a controversial figure uh, in terms of his relationship with WWE, uh, became very outspoken on the internet about the current state of professional wrestling. Mm-hmm. So he had his detractors. I'm not one of them. Uh, Billy Graham, one of the all-time greats in professional wrestling. And there he is again. And we're going to talk uh, extensively about his AWA run, especially his matches with Crusher and Wahoo. I remember those so damn well. I mean, my goodness. The, oh, Yeah, bloodbaths. We, we, we could do a couple of hours on, on on any one of these guys. I mean, you know, I, I, there are times where I just don't shut up. And this will be one of them. I will. Oh, Karch, come on. Okay, <laughs> well, I have to mute you, Joe, because we have to get to other things. No. <laughs> okay, now now I now I have to move on. This is, this is, I don't know what you did. Okay, well, you know what? Screw you. I'm taking you out of the stream. There you go. Okay, so I want to thank uh, 7th Avenue Pizza. I want to thank Soda Stick. Join us on our social media platforms at AWA Unleashed on Twitter, our AWA Unleashed fan page. And uh, all right, Joe's back. I'm going to, well, you unmuted the microphone. I'm going to, I'm going to mute it. Where's uh, where's Jerry Catwell, by the way, Mick? Uh, Jerry Cantwell, I believe, is getting a, a massage. I mean, he's got a big back, you know. Uh, Jerry Cantwell is, uh, I believe, heading to Iraq. The The caravan is waiting. And uh, Jerry Cantwell will be getting all kinds of treats and whiskers and feline food and all kinds of stuff. So okay, uh, can you pay him the Mazzotti? Cat will be back next week, I guarantee you. Cat is far more over than I am. Well, you must not have paid him because he didn't even make an appearance this week. He must be wrestling in another territory. Will you mute him again, please? Happily. <laughs> <laughs>